0: Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Amy Walter, national editor of the Cook Political Report, who discussed possible outcomes of the 2016 presidential and down-ballot races and what may lie ahead after election day. Moderating the discussion was Nick O'Meely, director of the Shorenstein Center. All right. Welcome to the Shorenstein Center Speaker Series. I'm Nico. I'm the Director of the Center. Now, to our main event. Amy Walter is the National Editor of the Cook Political Report, where she provides analysis of the issues, trends, and events that shape the political environment. She has a weekly column at cookpolitical.com. She has a, a history as a Accurate, objective, and insightful political analyst, uh, among the best covering Washington, D.C. and politics. She's the former political director of ABC News. You may have seen her on NBC's Meet the Press or on PBS's Washington Week. You can catch her uh, tomorrow night during the debate on PBS as part of the uh, PBS's debate team. This is her second tour of duty with the Cook Political Report. From 97 to 07, she served as senior editor covering the US House. She is, among other things, uh, on the board of trustees at Colby College, where she graduated summa cum laude. And it is really, uh, I'm thrilled and delighted she can join us at what must be the busiest time uh, 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 twice a decade you're this busy.
1: That's a good way to think of that. Thank you. I tried to convince my son, who's now almost 10, when I had to leave for two weeks for the convention, and I said, you know what, this isn't, it's just like, it's like the Olympics. You know, every four years this this happens, and he goes, this isn't like the Olympics at all. (laughs) No, this isn't fun. I'm not going to watch you for seven hours a day on TV, so... Buy not, it. The Olympics, not the Olympics but the Olympics but still every four years
0: it has been a long haul here so <laughs> I thought maybe I just start by asking you to just what are your thoughts on the state of this race right now
1: yeah this is the the question right now is n- no longer who's gonna win but what the margins are gonna be and what it means um, further down the ticket and what it means when we think about uh, Hillary Clinton going forward, With a so-called mandate, Um, you know, normally when you have a wave election, a couple of things happen. You see that races start, uh, that states start to break. So if it's a presidential year, we're starting to see that Hillary Clinton's national number is building. Right? She was it was a three or four point race. Now it's a six, seven, eight point race, Um, and uh, you would expect then that other states to soon follow that that trend and that down-ballot races are also going to follow that trend. But what's interesting is even as we're seeing um, Hillary Clinton's margins improve in all of the national polling, um, two things haven't changed. One, people still don't really like her any more than they did a month or two months or three months ago. So the perceptions of her haven't really changed. Um, People still don't like him. They just happen to not like him a lot more than they don't like her. Um, and um, when asked the question about do you want to see a Republican or a Democrat in office at the congressional level, that number is improved for Democrats, but not dramatically. It's um, It went up <laughs> like two or three points in the NBC poll. It's only at three points in the um, the Washington Post poll. And just to give you a sense of what other wave elections looked like, so when we, you go back to 2008, big win for Barack Obama, obviously both on the popular vote and the electoral vote. But that congressional ballot test, which I said right now is somewhere between D plus three and D plus six, was D plus 13 to 15, <laughs> okay, in 2008. So that's, that's what a wave looked when you see the you know, pieces forming of it. So it's this, it's, I've been writing about this for a while, but we seem to have this really bifurcated election where the presidential race is happening over here, and yet the forces that seem to be uh, driving the presidential race aren't as apparent at the congressional level. If this is such a disruptive election where you have somebody like Donald Trump beat seasoned opponents, why haven't we seen congressional incumbents lose to Trump-like candidates? If Bernie Sanders is the new force of the progressive left that's going to oust the old guard on the Democratic side, how come those forces have won their reelection, even against well-funded opponents? So. Um, you know, we're going to have a lot to dig through. Actually, my favorite time of the year is after the election. We can actually dig through all the data and, and finally have answers to all these questions. But that, to me, is going to be the most fascinating piece, is to see if indeed this bifurcation continues, because that's not what we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years. Normally, they kind of come together at the end, right? That candidates try to separate themselves from the from the bad environment or the bad top of the ticket and insulate themselves. It usually doesn't work. People don't split their tickets. They feel the commitment to their party and they vote all the, you know, to the to the candidate on top. They vote that same party all the way down the line. Um, this would be a very unique circumstance if indeed uh, Hillary Clinton could win by a big margin and Republicans could still hold on to the Senate. And finally, as I said, the other difference is that she will come in with a disapproval rating higher than any other candidate that we've had in the last 20 years. I went back and looked at where, um, where candidates were, at this point, they overall favorable, unfavorable at this point in the cycle. And the person at the lowest level, not surprisingly, is Donald Trump, okay? He has the lowest favorable, unfavorable. The next above him was actually uh, George HW Bush in 92 hmm. um, then it goes Hillary Clinton uh, so they're all the lowest mark the next lowest for somebody who actually won um, was uh, George W Bush and Barack Obama so Bush in George W Bush in 2004 and Obama in 12 were Slightly above fifty percent approval rating. Okay, not much. So it was like a plus four, plus five when they came in, or when ultimately when they won
0: in the midterm. In,
1: uh, no mid. in their in their Re-elect. reelection. Reelect. So in their reelection contest, two thousand four, two thousand twelve, people didn't love them, but at least their approval rating was more positive than negative. Hillary Clinton's now is minus ten. All right. So she would be the she would come into office with the lowest approval rating of anybody that we've seen going back to to 92.
0: Hmm. And uh, just talk to us for a minute. So you're seeing kind of very clear path to victory for Hillary just a question of how large a margin. What is the down ballot look like? What is the. You know, if I heard you embedded in what you just said, you think the Senate's looking pretty good for the Democrats? The
1: Senate is, but it's not a it's not a slam dunk. And, um, you know, on paper, when this year started, we said uh, Democrats have a great chance to take over the Senate because uh, they're playing all offense. They are um, Republicans are defending seven Senate seats in states that Obama had carried in the last election. And um, now you put on top of it a growing lead for Hillary Clinton. This should all lead to success down ballot. Um, Democrats need, just for purposes of math, they need four seats to take control of the Senate. That would be a 50-50 split. That's the bare minimum they need, 50-50. Hillary Clinton wins, then Tim Kaine becomes the tiebreaker. Um, if she were not to win, uh, they would need five seats. So let's just go with the, the four-seat scenario right now. Uh, there are two states that today look like they are leaning to the, to the Democrat. All the polling has been headed this way, or has been uh, pointing in this direction for months, which is Illinois and Wisconsin. So that would leave uh, Democrats two seats short. Where do they go to get those? Now, the states that they should be playing in, states that Obama carried, states that Hillary Clinton is uh, either ahead or very competitive, Ohio, Florida, um, we have Pennsylvania, New Hampshire. Um, she wins two out of those four. That's it, there, there's your 50-seat scenario. Now, Florida and Ohio, the Republican has been running ahead. Uh, in some cases, like Ohio, Rob Portman is running 15 points ahead of where Donald Trump is. Uh, he has really created his own identity, his own brand, and he is not associated with the t- the ticket. Rubio's been polling above Trump. In fact, every single one of these candidates, whether it's Pennsylvania or New Hampshire, Ohio or Florida, have been outpolling Donald Trump. Um, the question is if they can still do it if he collapses. If he's only losing New Hampshire by 4 or 5 points versus losing it by 9 or 10, that's the difference, I think, between Kelly Ayotte winning mm. and Kelly Ayotte, the mm. Republican senator from New Hampshire, losing. Same with Pennsylvania. Those are, again, right now in the polling, they're neck and neck. but. Um, Depending on the margin in that state, that could tell us whether the Senate flips.
0: Which Senate race has surprised you most this cycle?
1: I think um, you'd have to say Missouri. Um, This is a state that nobody would argue is a swing state anymore. It used to be that, you know, as Missouri goes, so goes the nation. That's been a long time since Missouri's been a bellwether. and Roy Blunt, the senator, has been there for quite some time as a senator, as a congressperson, as a senator. Um, but uh, this year, he's running into the environment, which is an anti-incumbent, anti-establishment environment. Um, he is uh, a creature of the environment, um, of the status quo. Excuse me. Um, he's been a fixture in washington for many many years um, his son was the governor for a short time his wife is a well-known lobbyist uh, both of his sons are now lobbyists and the caricature is easy to paint of him is he's somebody who has come to washington and benefited from all that people hate about washington the insider game they you know you can inf- there's influence peddling that benefits the people that are in the government, and he's running against a, a fresh-faced young Iraq war veteran um, who can make the case that, you know, if you're looking for somebody who's a real outsider, come to somebody who's, uh, who doesn't have the baggage uh, that he does. North Carolina is another state that's been, um, I think, su- I don't know if surprising is the right word, but it's definitely been roiled in a way that we didn't expect a year or so ago a lot of that is driven by North Carolina centric issues namely HB 2 and the debate over the so-called bathroom bill and and it's also a state that is it's one of those classic uh, swing state now it's a really truly a swing state that is it's very transient certainly much more transient than it has been in the past got a lot of new people moving in throughout the state it's not just Charlotte but if you've been to Asheville recently, that, that looks a heck of a lot different than when I was a kid growing up and driving through Asheville. Um, and uh, it is um, a very difficult state to get known in, partly because you have new people coming in all the time, so you have to re-educate people. But it also has 10 media markets, and um, you getting your message out in North Carolina is really, really, really hard. It's just a diffused kind of place. And um, so it makes it hard for, so Senator Richard Burr, um, this would be his second term, but he still doesn't have a real identity there. Um, And he waited very late in the game to start getting serious about his reelection, which a lot of Republicans are very frustrated about. Um, And in fact, that would be one of the great ironies of this campaign, (coughs) is that the candidates on paper who would have been the most vulnerable to a Trump loss uh, and a Hillary Clinton sweep would be Rob Portman in Ohio or Marco Rubio in Florida, and yet it's more likely now that Democrats can win Missouri or North Carolina or even Indiana, which is much less about Republicans than it is Democrats getting a f- their former senator at the last minute to come. And, and run there. And so he's going to be outperforming Hillary Clinton. But if those are the three states that determine the majority, hmm. that would be a kind of rich bit of irony there.
0: And I've seen a little bit last week or two about the Senate race in Arizona and McCain's yeah. re-elect.
1: He's um He is benefiting from the fact, much like Rob Portman um, and uh, Marco Rubio, that they are separate from Donald Donald Trump in a way that If you are a brand new senator or if you're in a state where the tide is going to be so strong, it's it's harder. It's harder Mm -hmm. to do that. So um, we haven't seen the same sort of tightening in the Senate race that you're seeing at the presidential.
0: And then I have to ask about the House, because, of course, we've seen uh, a number, you know, the House, for a variety of reasons, felt like that was just beyond thinkable that the Democrats had any shot. That's right. It just seems so gerrymandered and the country so polarized that the, the Democrats would have zero chance. Yeah. But in the last couple weeks, it seems to have opened up that this is at least under discussion that it might be on the table. What's your assessment?
1: Yeah. So that's where I go back to that generic ballot. And, and, and really, we go, you look at 2006 when Democrats, I think— maybe it was 36 or 38 seats that they picked up in that election. How can I not remember? It used to be, like, drilled into my brain. But um, the Democratic advantage on the congressional ballot test then was double digits. And as I said today, it's 3, 4, 5, 6. Um, you, you, the way that districts are drawn um, and the kinds of seats that are competitive uh, really limits the ability for Democrats to expand, expand the playing field all that much. The more interesting story after the election, I think, are the kind of districts that Democrats win and don't win. And, you know, when I started covering Congress, you looked at competitive states, where the ones where the first thing you looked at to see if a congressional race was competitive was to see how the presidential candidate performed in that district the election before right oh this is a and then you came up with the formula oh it's a d plus one district it's an r plus three right that that basically the margin that the republican candidates had gotten over the last two cycles there the democrat had gotten (laughs) the last two cycles and you use that as your benchmark but now and we're going to be spending a lot of time post-campaign talking about this um the kinds of districts that um, Democrats normally had done well in, or let's say, in the in older days you would have picked as a Democratic-friendly district. White, uh, white blue-collar districts now are going to most likely either go to a Republican or stay in Republican hands. Suburban, wealthy, educated districts that for so long have been Republican-leaning now could go D. Um, And so the splits that we're seeing at the presidential level between um, college and non-college educated voters, especially white, more specifically uh, white voters, will play a role, too, in the kinds of districts that flip between Democrat and Republican. So if you go into suburban Minneapolis or suburban Philadelphia or suburban Chicago and Virginia, that's going to look a lot different than going into places that used to be battleground districts. When I was covering the House, which is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan or upstate Mm -hmm. New York um, or Long Island, which um, are less diverse and have uh, fewer younger, college-educated voters. <laughs> Are there any
0: House races you're paying particular attention to?
1: Um, so that's why we have a really great House editor who you guys should meet named <laughs> David Wasserman. That used to be my job, and I used to know all of the congressional districts, and he's done a great job, actually. Uh, I should have brought his print out, but if, at, at cookpolitical.com laying out sort of the three or four different baskets of, of districts um, to look for. But again, I, I, I think um, he laid this out really nicely a few months ago, the difference between Nebraska and Maine. Now, Nebraska and Maine are the two states that award their electoral vote, both by wh- whoever wins the state. Right? They get two, and then the rest are <coughs> divided by whoever wins that congressional district. So you can split, you can see a state that actually splits its electoral vote. and. Um, Nebraska's second district is Omaha. That is the district that Obama carried in 2008. It is that sort of, it's overwhelmingly white, but more urbane, more, you're gonna have a higher percentage of college educated folks. Um, Maine's second district is basically everything that's not Portland, um, and was the whitest and most working class state that, or district that Obama carried in 2012. up until most recently, uh, Trump was up double digits in Maine's second district. You haven't had a Democrat win, I mean, a Republican win up there. I, I don't, probably since George H.W. Bush won the state back in 88. Um, and Nebraska, too, obviously, you saw Obamacare in, tr- in, t- in 08, lost it in 12. That to me, and and to David, he makes a great point that they they sort of sum up this election, right? The kinds of districts for white districts, again, not more diverse districts, but if you're looking at what sort of explains the split uh, at the presidential level, how that plays out at the congressional level, look at overwhelmingly white working class main second district and, uh, and then go look at Omaha and you can get a sense for what impact that had down ballot.
0: So just to go back to the presidential for a minute, or or not, I guess, more broadly to the election. You know, we had been we've been talking a few minutes ago about voter turnout. Yeah. What are your what is you know, what are your expectations for voter turnout? And what does that look like? And kind of maybe related. We're seeing in the last few days, we've seen some pretty wide differentials in various polls about the national race. And they seem to be built on different assessments of turnout, right?
1: Yeah, they're built built on different assessments of the uh, what? Yes, who turns out um, versus how many Total of them turn out, right? Yeah. So, who turns out? Are they going to be? Is it going to be younger? Is it going to be older? Is it going to be whiter? Is it going to be less white? And um, but there's an undeniable pattern right now where you have. You know, I think at the highest end, it's 11 points. At the lowest end, it's four points. So I (coughs) wish I would have done this in school for all of you kids, take statistics, it helps. (laughs) So all I know how to do is average. (laughs) I don't know about regression analysis, anything like that. But you gotta say that somewhere in between, let's just call it six, okay? Let's like just, nice, like somewhere in the middle there, put it all, mush it all together, it's six point race. 6-point so race at the electoral college level is kind of a blowout. Uh, it's still relatively close in the grand scheme of things, but it will it will be a big number there. Um, so what does turnout look like? I've heard every theory for why it's going to be higher or lower. Um, the, the why it will be lower, you look at, um, this is the NBC Wall Street Journal poll makes, they sort of make this case where they look at uh voter interest in the race and enthusiasm in the race going back for the last few cycles and we're about at the lowest we've been going back a few cycles right and that makes some sense you say we have two people that nobody likes or very few people like certainly not a majority of people like um and it's been an ugly awful soul crushing election of course it's going to be lower turnout. On the other hand, you say, this is an election that everybody is paying attention to. You know, normally, certainly this is... Oh, look, I'm the one
0: who has a phone on. Um,
1: normally, you look at an election, like, tw- you know, 2012, 2004. Those were not elections that were getting... a t- that, that was not sort of saturated into our daily discourse in the way this election is. And you had good turnout, right? So to think that you could have turnout lower than that when we've had nothing but discussion about this election, that anywhere you go in this country, somebody is going to be talking about this race, it seems to me that that is encouraging more turnout rather than less. And that while there are plenty of people, you may even be in this room saying, I don't know, I don't like my choices, maybe I'll just stay home, maybe I'm going to leave something blank, maybe I'm going to um it's hard to believe that given everything you know and how much this has you know been a, a part of 2016 that you could actually honestly live with yourself if you stayed home if you've been a consistent <laughs> voter your whole life you know what i mean like mm-hmm. that you're gonna stay home for this one <laughs> you turned out in 2004 you turned out in 2012 you turned out 2008 but now this one you're like meh
0: so that would argue yeah, for pretty high turnout yeah i yeah. think that
1: would be more likely than that and you know it's hard right now because we're we're getting um early votes in now and um so you you can look at the early vote one of two ways and say, you know, uh, in places right now in Virginia, where I live, the more uh, liberal parts of the state—Arlington, Alexandria, Fairfax County—they've had more early vote than they had that they've ever seen, right? And yet, in parts of the state that are more heavily African American, it's lower than 2012. Um, So maybe it becomes that it's disproportionate, too, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And we also don't know that uh, you may get a lot of people, are they just paying it forward? That they're people that they're early voting, but they always vote versus they're early voting uh, and had not been normally thinking about voting.
0: Yeah, early voting is convenience versus early voting is increased participation.
1: Correct. Convenience and this, but it also may speak to the enthusiasm.
0: I can ask you one more question, then we'll take yeah. questions from the room, it's privileging students. Um, what this has been just in many, in, you know, in many ways, if you stripped out the names mm-hmm. and the year, and you just looked at the polling averages, we've had one kind of pretty consistent winner in the general yep. the whole time. Yeah. it's been a, in some ways a remarkably unsurprising. Correct. Uh, election. But in other ways, it's been very surprising. And so I just kind of wonder, across the gamut, primary, general, what what has really surprised you the most yeah. here?
1: It's, those are it's a very good question. So let's start with the very beginning. Um, I was definitely one of those people early on, Trump's coming down the golden escalator, uh, that was like, this is a joke, it's not going to happen, he can't win. And I wasn't just basing that on my own subjective analysis of a guy coming down a golden escalator. Yes, my (laughs) elitist uh, part of the system, whatever you want to call me. Um, I don't know. I looked at the data, and it said to me, let's see here. I looked at, I'm going to go to the polling of Republican primary voters. Donald Trump, name identification, 100%. Favorable rating among Republicans, 40%. Unfavorable rating, 60-whatever percent. I mean, you know, maybe it's like 35-65 or 40-60. Huh. You don't have to be a genius or a political scientist to go, if you have a 100% of people know who you are and only 40% of them like you, you're not going to win. Right, there we go. Done and done. That's not a hard... It's like, how do you grow... You know, usually you can start off, like, if you're 40-60, but 20% of people go, oh, people just need to get to know me, then they'll like me. No, they know you, and they don't like you. <laughs> so the most surprising thing I've... I And I've never seen anything like this in politics, that over the course of the summer, he flipped that 40-60 to 60-40. That was remarkable, and that's where... I made the mistake, is because when that flipped, then that should have been a sign that actually now, of course, he can win because he's taken out the biggest obstacle to his success, which is a a built-in wall against, 60% wall against him. And while I still thought that, you know, ultimately there would be one person to challenge him, that the the sort of anti-Trump would coalesce, It never happened, and part of it was that his ability to win um, across all segments. He didn't uh, have to dominate uh, in the way that people thought he did among evangelicals and among Tea Party and among those folks. He did well enough. And then he dominated among among white voters without a, a college degree in a way that nobody else could compete with. Um, the other thing that's been, to your point, and I, I think this has really been interesting to watch, too, is this pattern of the election. It, it, it has been, if you just flatten it out, it's looked really um, consistent and boring, right? Um, and, and NBC ran these numbers today, which was really <laughs> good. Where we were a year ago with oh, the overall favorable ratings of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are exactly where we are now. So the perceptions of these two candidates haven't changed over the course. That's why I, I do hate when people say, you know, oh, nothing nothing Donald Trump does matters. Nothing can, it, well, it does, people don't like him, period. Yeah, he won the nomination, but that doesn't mean people liked him any better. Republicans liked him better, but overall, independents, Democrats did not. But what has happened, If you can flatten it out and see a straight line, but it, it w- would go like this, which is it looks, you know, like a pretty consistent, small but consistent Hillary Clinton lead, and then it would go like this.
0: She'd expand the lead in some dramatic way. She would expand the lead,
1: and it it would always came at the following times. One, Trump said or did something outrageous, reprehensible, Mm -hmm. right? Attacking the Gold Star family, attacking the judge, um, and now, of course, the— first debate attacking the Miss America and now the audio tape, right? So his lead would go, we would talk about, oh my God, the Senate's going to flip, the House, is gonna, it's going to be a landslide, uh, heads are exploding all over Washington about Republicans are never going to get back in power ever, 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 the destruction of the party. Um, and then it collapses back down. And uh, Hillary,
0: Hillary loses the lead. And, and Hillary it- loses the
1: lead because the following things happen. He shuts up and gets off Twitter and gets off television. Um, and gets on a teleprompter. Um, the focus goes back to her, her emails, the Clinton Foundation, uh, whatever the sort of scandal de jour is. Um, and the real it 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 also we have to recognize that the real underlying one underlying current in this election about disruption, about change. She represents nothing of that. Right. The race kind of wants to be closer. It wants to be here. Um And then it reopens and then it closes. So now we're at the next reopening. but what can he do to close that? Uh, one, he'd have to actually start acting like a candidate who wants to win, which he's not, um, and run a campaign that suggests he can win, which he's not. Um, and while there's plenty of bad stuff now coming out of WikiLeaks, of the FBI document that came out yesterday about Hillary Clinton, Instead of focusing on that, he's decided to go and attack his, the, fem- the, the women who are accusing him of sexual assault. He's attacking Paul Ryan. He's attacking voters. Um, and I, I just I can't even imagine what this debate is going to look like tomorrow night. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I want OK. <laughs> we have tomorrow some it. questions from the
0: audience. I have a few. Students, come on. Mer- Meredith?
1: Yeah. <coughs> okay, Hi. so I, there's, sorry, my name's Meredith Sandberg. I'm Hi. a student here at the King School. Um, so there's a lot to get into with the election itself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a poor fool who thinks the election has something to do with governing after the election is yeah. over. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you use the word mandate very tenuously yeah. for Hillary Clinton. Like, what is does I government know. look like? What is, I mean, is this going to get worse? This is... Maybe, a continuous slide until... Until, forever? like, into the depths <laughs> of hell. You, <laughs> you said it, not me. No, listen. <laughs> I, I, um, by nature, I like to think of myself as an optimistic person but I don't find a, a lot of reason to be optimistic um, for two reasons. One, as I said, her margin of victory may be big, but if she comes in with an overall favorable rating that's minus 10, that's not a mandate, right? That, that is less about, you know, that it's it, this wasn't about you, right? Um, so that makes it difficult. Winning seats this is why the campaign is investing so heavily in trying to get these down ballot races over the finish line she comes in with the democratic senate even if it's only one or two seats it's a heck of a lot easier to have two branches on your side than have much more divided though the house will still be a factor um the other problem that I, i said is the The polarization that is going to come from this campaign is going to be deeper and wider than anything we've seen in our lifetimes. Um, We right now have, at least in the polling, the largest gender gap we've seen in 40 or 50 years. Um, We are going to have another huge divide between white and non-white voters. Um, And this big gap in those who have a college education and those who don't. So we are going to come out of this race, if it's even possible, more polarized than we were going into it on those lines. Um, And that does not bode well for like the, let's bring America together, red and white, all together now. Um, The challenge for Hillary Clinton, I think both in the debate tomorrow night and going forward throughout this campaign is to show a vision for how she's gonna do this, right? And to focus this less on who's gonna win and much more on what do you do when you win. And um, that's been her challenge for this entire campaign, which is she has a lot of policies, but there's not really a vision, right? And um, there's not really like a, a deeper message to this campaign beyond, well, if you elect me, there's stuff I can get done. Which is fine, but it's not exactly inspiring, right? Um, Check out my website for my five policies. is not exactly bumper sticker material. Um, So that's I think that's where she she needs to go here. Look at the end of the day, I think that um, if this does end up a Paul Ryan, Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer, who's the would become the majority leader in the Senate. these are three people who like to cut deals, okay? These are three, you could call them, whatever you want to call them, pragmatists. If you're, uh, you know, b- believe that th- they're sellouts, you can also call them that, right? Because they're not sticking by core principles or willing to, um, but I think that they are people who want to get stuff done and want to cut deals and want to make sure that they, um, they keep government working and even want to do big things, right? Tax reform, entitlement reform, uh, infrastructure reform, whatever it is, spending. I don't, it's not the leaders that are as much of the problem as the followers, right? And so I'm um, saying this to Nico, but one, one of the most dramatic numbers that I saw in all of the polling taken in this campaign was taken during the primaries where Republican voters in Iowa were asked if they felt that. Republicans in Congress had compromised too much or too little with Obama. And 81 percent said they compromised too much. (laughs) (laughs) So if that's what Republican primary voters think, there's not a lot of whole room. Like Hillary Clinton can go like literally camp out on Capitol Hill, like sleep in the the the, the halls of Congress, you know, like, hey, it's Hillary. I'm here with coffee. Donuts, everybody. Um, Being seen in her presence is considered um, a treacherous and treasonous act. So how are you going to get anything done? Even if you say I have a commitment to doing that. Um, So that uh, that worries me. And, you know, you're already hearing, again, after this newest tranche of emails and WikiLeaks are going to continue for the next three weeks and beyond, I don't doubt after she's going to be in Washington, uh, you know, for 15 minutes before there is a congressional hearing on some of these emails.
0: What about how does how does twenty eighteen play into that? Right, like you know, the twenty eighteen right. is going to be a very competitive year. Democrats have a lot of seats up.
1: In is the there Senate, a good yeah. chance
0: that the Republicans decide to do to like just block everything that right. happens for two years?
1: Right. So there, there's the short term success would be to make things as miserable for Hillary Clinton as possible, so that they get control of the Senate back, um, expand this, the the House, and then make sure she has two super unproductive, terrible years so that 2020 is the year of Republicans, and then they get to control the White House, the Senate, and the House in 2020. Um, that is a, that is political, real, real political calculus that you can't, I mean, we can say, well, that's terrible, and that goes to your point, boy, I'd love to see governing happening. If you're a Republican at, at, what you can make the case that nothing's really going to happen until you have one party control and we'd rather wait till we have one party control and then we can really make things happen. All right? We'll get rid of Obamacare, we'll, we'll really do tax reform, um, we'll do um, the kinds of reforming of uh, government programs that we've always wanted to do but have been stopped by Democrats. That is real action. You may not like it, but at least it's action.
0: Derek. Yeah. Hi, um, Amy. Uh, Derek Jackson, one of the uh, fellows. Okay. Um, does the uh, coverage of uh, Trump, Clinton, and the whole process represent the media's finest hour, <laughs> or, or something? <laughs> or are, else? are they
1: just sort of reflecting what's happening? I mean, Nico knows a lot more about this than I do. I'm just sitting in the in the middle of it. I think that at its core, and you guys appreciate this as well, especially folks in the program and who are fellows that, you know, we seem to forget sometimes that um, journalists, just like politicians, are actual human beings that are trying to figure stuff out that is confounding to them. Um, And this election has been confounding. I know that, again, in my Washington insider bubble, uh, when the first reports of Donald Trump's what we thought were big missteps came out in the press. And they were his own words. This wasn't somebody leaking a conversation that they had. But you actually, he proudly said that John McCain wasn't a war hero. Uh, He uh, trashed people left and right. He had said stuff on Howard Stern that was over the top. He had made comments about Abortion, about Planned Parenthood, about Hillary Clinton, about all these sorts of things that he said that were on tape, and they just ran them over and over again. And so again,
0: they weren't gaffes. They weren't they, gaffes. Yeah. They
1: were real. They were how we believed in. So they he were thought, well, bugs, surely you can't win a Republican primary saying that John McCain's not a war hero, giving money to Hillary Clinton, supporting abortion, supporting Obamacare. No way. All right, so. Actually, what does that say about the media, Uh, that everything, they just took him and put him on television, and it didn't sway voters. It says as much about what voters wanted to believe, one, which was they they just chose not to make that an important part of their decision-making process, right? Yeah, that's what he said. Don't care. He's going to shake things up. He's going to change Washington. And that's more important to me than his views 10 years ago on Planned Parenthood or whatever it was. Um, the, uh, the second is the one uh, other d- terrifying number for those of us in the media this year was the just steep decline in trust of the media. And it's, uh, it's never been that high, um, but it's now at 19%, which is I think serial killers now have a higher <laughs> approval rating yes. than journalists. Um, and so, you know, it gets us to this place I think we didn't end up in this election on accident. Let's just be really clear that this is not a weird one-off anomaly that just happened because we have a pop culture a society that's in love with celebrities, and so he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I would argue that this is we've been building to this election for a long, long time, and it's not going to go away um, in 2018, 2019, 2020. 20, um, if you have... Every major institution in this country now at its lowest trust level, um, but for the military, um, and you put on top of that major life-altering uh, changes in every aspect of, of our lives in this country, whether it's economic, global with globalization at all, and and the death of manufacturing, that is not just about <laughs> globalization, but it's about technology, right? And how technology has upended all of our lives. The cultural and demographic changes in this country, I don't know if there's been a time when we've had so much demographic and cultural change coming on top of economic and um, and technological change, right? This has all been happening at the same time. That, as I said, our institutions are both not trusted to handle it and have proven that they can't really help us navigate this change. And so um, this is where, you know, just reading the op-eds from the newspapers, it feels like just completely detached from the reality that people are feeling, right? And so how, how do you do that? How do you represent the distrust and the disgust? that folks have with uh, an institution that is supposed to be a beacon of truth um, while also (laughs) holding true to this idea that we're there to give, to make you voter um, smarter and better informed. If they don't trust that you're there to do that, then I don't know. We seem to be in a circular argument, right?
0: What what do you... What do you think is going on in the in the country? Like, how do you there's this tremendous desire. You said that there's tremendous desire for change that in part because the dynamics of the two candidates and, you know, the kind of noxious candidate that Donald Trump is he can't be the change candidate because. He's too terrible, right? Um, but Hillary Clinton certainly is not, not change. change. Yeah. What 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 do you understand is the underlying dynamics and and the way they almost seem to be, from what you're saying, mismatched to the political parties,
1: right? They seem to be mismatched with either the time or their their own parties, right? So, um, the uh, I, I can't remember. Maybe it was in the Globe. Um, Somebody did a great piece interviewing uh, younger voters, and there's this one uh, 19-year-old in North Carolina who I think summed it up better than any pundit I've heard. He said, uh, Trump is w- everything that's wrong with our culture, and Hillary's everything that's wrong with our government. And um, I was like, well, God, well, now that guy's kind of smart. He uh, better not take my job. Um, and uh, I think that is what that's what,
0: the, what. What do you what do you think that means? Hillary's everything that's wrong with our government.
1: The sense that government, in and of itself, right? So if you say, well, what is it that you don't like about Hillary Clinton talking to voters who don't like her? Uh, you know, the first thing that comes up, of course, the lying in the server. But it's the sense overall that she and her husband have benefited from a lifetime being in politics. They've enriched themselves, their friends, and the people around them by being part of government. Number one. Number two that government in and of itself is um, seen too often as the way to fix things rather than seeing government as part of the, that needs to be fixed, right? You can't just use government to fix stuff if government in itself is a terrible vehicle for that, and that the structural change that needs to happen. I mean, I, I keep arguing that part of the challenge we're having, whether it's in politics, in academics, uh, you know, just think in business, any other big institution is that we still seem to be operating in a 20th century mindset with 20th century constructs and we're putting all the 21st century stuff in there and trying to make it fit into this box and it doesn't fit and so you know you think about what government when it was created and what it was created for look it's bureaucratic it's not transparent it's clunky it takes time um, the technology is terrible sometimes on purpose (laughs) it's terrible and so it doesn't fit our 21st century—it's ridic- it, it 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 really does not fit both where we are physically in time in the 21st century, but it also doesn't fit what our definition of uh, a productive organization would be at this time and place. And you know, for uh, for as much as there was a dismissal of the Bernie Sanders support as kids wanting free stuff, um, I talked to plenty of younger voters. I said. <laughs> we're not going to get free college. I get I get that. This isn't about free college. This is at least that he's willing to talk about stuff and ch- challenge stuff. She's not going to challenge anything. She's going to live within what we have and accept that and just try to move around the edges. And that I think is so you have that strain going on as well as the other disruptive strain that Trump represents, which is a lot of it to the cultural and social change. It's not just economic, that's a big piece of it, but the cultural and social change that's happening in this country, this idea of PC culture, right? That we've been able to say and do whatever we wanted for 250 years, now all these people are telling us we can't say or do what we want to do. That's gonna stop right now. Marcus. Hi. Hi I'm, I'm Marcus, I'm also a fellow here. Mm-hmm. I, if I may, I wanted to ask you about your own work a, a little bit. And I'm there are so many political analysts that I see on TV or that I read. And I'm wondering whether you can talk a little bit about what the tools or the tricks are that, that you use that make your analysis more compelling than the other analyses in your own view. In, like. in my own view, yes. <laughs> well, in my view. <laughs> and, uh, the, the sexiest political analyst around. No. Um, look, I... I, I Did not come from a journalism background. I came from a political background, so I worked on campaigns. And so, um, but I didn't want to stay involved in campaigns. I I didn't get that much satisfaction out of it. I loved the campaign piece of it, but I didn't want to be either a partisan. That wasn't very fulfilling. And living out of my car every, I mean, you know this, uh, every four years or two years is also not particularly fulfilling to me. Some people love it good for them. I'm not one of those. Um, So I came into covering politics as somebody who'd been involved in it, as opposed to somebody who's an outsider to it. So uh, I think what I can bring to it then is an appreciation for why people do what they do. And my job at its core is not to tell people who should win, but who can win. Okay. I don't, I don't. You can vote for whoever you want. I'm not going to tell you that this should this should never happen. That's not me. I um, I'm going to tell you how they can. That's why we went through the electoral college. Right? We can go. Well, she she, she shouldn't win. He shouldn't win. That's fine. Let's well, let me walk you through that. So I spend a lot of time. I try to talk to as many people who are doing political work who aren't necessarily part of the campaigns. I don't get. You don't get a lot out of talking to the campaigns themselves. Their job is to put the best spin. I get that. And talking to them is important, and I will always do that. Um, You have to hear their point of view and their perspective. But there are plenty of other people out there now who are doing polling, data analysis, um, who are working with voters who are doing focus groups, that you can get a different perspective by getting outside of the immediate – He's he versus she, or she versus she campaign. Um, And I'm not, as I said, uh, you know, I didn't take statistics. I'm not a big data person. I barely know how to use Excel, okay? But um, you can, there's a lot of data that's out there that even a basic amount of information, um, where you can really start to, use it to keep you from getting too caught up in the personal pieces uh uh, of the campaign and to focus really on what the data is telling us and that's what i meant with nika which is the data was telling me at the very beginning that donald trump did not have a chance to win the primary when that data changed that should have also changed the way that i looked at this race but i still found it so confounding that, that Republicans would choose a candidate whose numbers among all voters were still terrible, who would not do anything to help expand the electorate, um, who was the one candidate who seemed could compete with Hillary Clinton on the issue of who do you find as untrustworthy, <laughs> and yet they nominated him anyway. So logically, it didn't make sense, but if you looked at the data, it, it was there. Uh, you know, throughout the primary.
0: So I think that it's very easy to name some of the rising stars in the Republican Party. From yes. Rubio to Paul Ryan to, you know, uh, Rand Paul. But who do you think of as the rep- rising stars in I the know, Democratic Party? I know. I've been
1: having this thought for a while now, which is this has been the challenge for Democrats, is that there there aren't as many as you would think, in part because the bench has been... Obliterated over these last few years, right? There are hard. There aren't many Democratic governors, senators. They're not in leadership in, and their leadership in the House has been um, dominated by three people, all in their 70s, if not Soon 80s. to be 80s. Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn. Um, I talked to plenty of Democrats in the House who I think are young, smart, rising stars. Um, they're not going to be around much longer. It's bad enough that they're in the minority, but they would stay if they felt like, well, I can get a leadership post. But if those three posts are going to continue to be held by those folks, there's nowhere for them to go. And so the brain drain is not just because they lose seats, but also because the leadership continues to stay in place and not, not adapt. And so it does, it leaves me, you know, you sort of look around and you go, okay, well, you know, you have some young uh, uh folks in, um, you know, in Cory Booker from New Jersey, um, and he certainly, I think, did a very good job at the convention of showing his chops there, both as an inspirational figure. um, And, you know, but you have a a couple senators, uh, women senators, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, Kirsten Gillibrand, from New York. They don't have a particularly high national profile, um, but they are folks who you could put into that category. At its core, though, what Democrats really need in 2018 um, is to start winning some governor's races. And I don't have the number in front of me. I, I need to start putting it to memory, but there will be a record number of open gubernatorial seats in 2018 because you have so many term limits kicking in in these states. So we have Big states with open governors races. Um, this is the place. If Democrats are going to build their bench, you really want to build it. You know, you want governors, yeah, governors. right? Senators are—they're fine. Uh, and uh, there's nothing wrong with senators. It's just if th- th- to have an executive bench is going to be critical.
0: Hmm. And what about um, what about how do you see the lame duck session playing out here? I know you, you. know we have TPP. We have Merrick Garland.
1: So much of it, I think, is going to be.
0: I'm so, Sorry to interrupt, but I yeah. think that in 2012, the most productive session of Congress was in the last four duck. years was the lame yeah. duck.
1: right. You didn't have you didn't have to answer for anything, right? And yet, um, so I think we have some big questions. The day, the day after the election, you know, for po- political reporters. Uh, We get caught up in counting down the election, day 20, Uh, only 20 days left. Um, But uh, actually, the day of and the days after are gonna be as important this year than I've ever imagined, at least going back to the 2000 election. And that is, what kind of speech does Donald Trump give? If it's a this was stolen, I told you the whole time it was rigged. We're going to keep this revolution going. Pitchforks and I torches. To concede. I don't concede. She doesn't deserve mine. That sets up for lots of interesting and potentially dangerous uh, post-election situation. Um, the next is how many seats do Democrats pick up, and do they defeat um, some of these? Moderate Republicans who had been leaning towards something like TPP, but on the campaign trail, have now come out against it. Rob Portman in Ohio, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. Um, if if Toomey loses, does he say, "Well, I, don't, I know I said on the campaign trail I was going to vote against it, but screw you. You voted me out. I'm going to go vote for TPP." Uh, <laughs> you know, he could, but um, that would be that would be hard. McConnell has said. Openly, he's not going to bring up TPP. Now, he also said this before an election. But t- to my to my bigger point about the the sort of restiveness of the Republican base, um, if there is a sense that one, the election was stolen, and that is promoted by Donald Trump; two, that um, Hillary Clinton is an illegitimate president. Uh, and uh, three, that uh, the only way for Republicans to ever get back into power is to make sure to destroy Hillary Clinton and make her four years miserable, I really find it hard to believe that in that atmosphere they're going to be like, you know what, let's, get, let's just get Judge Garland up. Um, let's go get TPP through, right? And the other challenge for Republicans is that the the lame duck is, is, is pretty quick. And so to do a Supreme Court nomination, I mean, that's supposed to take you a little while, right? You shouldn't just be like, all right, we have mm, another five minutes. So anyone with a question for the judge? No? Great. Let's vote. You
0: know. Do, do you think that uh, if it doesn't happen in the lame duck, Garland will withdraw and she'll choose someone else?
1: You know, and again, here goes my little, sunny, naive optimism. If I were Hillary Clinton... And I, I come into office with low, lowest approval ratings of anybody in the last whatever many years, uh, real concerns about how I'm gonna govern, uh, a devastatingly polarized electorate. It sure seems to make sense to me to say, you know what, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna extend olive branches, right? First thing I'm gonna do, I'm gonna call Paul Ryan, I'm gonna call Mitch McConnell, I'm gonna go to their offices Personally, like, I'm going to go up to Capitol Hill and sit down with these guys. Uh, We can do this, America. It's not as bad as you think. The whole government's not going to shut down. I've heard talk about there's going to be, you know, riots in the street, pitchforks. We all agree that we're going to get stuff done. Um, And another way I'm not going to poke you in the eye, Republicans, even though you will probably call for my impeachment soon, (laughs) uh, is I'm not going to um, basically say, ha, ha, ha,
0: Elizabeth Here's Warren. About, exactly. Elizabeth Warren's
1: going to be a Supreme Court justice. Right? <laughs> ha! Take that. Um, so there's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure to do that, right? And there's going to be a lot of pressure on her choices of staff. Like, that to me is another question. It's, it's We don't hear a lot about it, but who does she have as her chief of staff? Who are the people that she picks in their cabinet? Are these the kind of people that, you know, are... Um, just poking a finger in the eye of Republicans, or are these people that progressives say, oh, well, we knew it all along. Give us a couple
0: names to give us a a comparison on that.
1: you know, there's the whole debate about um, already you're hearing progressive groups saying, and we learned a lot of this, too, from WikiLeaks, like, here are the people we cannot, that cannot get in. I don't know, I can't. I don't have them at the top of my mind, but you know the kinds of people. For example, anybody who's spent time on Wall Street, no, coming in. Uh, anybody who has hinted at doing, you know, entitlement reform of any sort, not coming in. Um, so uh, anybody that we see as part of the sort of Washington industrial complex can't come in. Um, that you know, there's there's going to be a lot of of pressure um, to do those things. But to your point, you know, if you, if you come out of a very toxic campaign uh, and what Clinton does is to actually say, I know I'm, not, I'm probably not gonna get rewarded from this, this doesn't mean that Republicans are necessarily gonna love me and work with me or vote for me, but it's the right thing to do to get this country feeling more united and to stop the daily p- polarizing uh, and partisanship. Um, I think that would be a good thing to do.
0: Can you name any Republicans she might want to put on her cabinet who would say yes?
1: Well, they're all. I mean, you got a whole bunch of people who were never going to vote for Trump. Um,
0: uh, like I don't a know. Chuck Hagel type.
1: Yeah, I don't even know if that matters anymore. I mean, I used to think that that would be a, again an olive branch, but if you think about the folks who've come out, for example. Uh, I can't remember with a number now who signed a letter saying, you know, we're support uh, Republicans for Hillary Clinton. And most of the Republicans who signed it were Republican members from a bygone era. Right? They were they were around. when I first started covering Congress when there were these things called moderate Republicans. From, and they they were from the Northeast and, and they they would win in places like New York and Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Um, they're not around anymore. Uh, in the same way that there aren't any more Democrats in Georgia or South Carolina or Mississippi. When I started, there were a lot of those. Um, so I, I don't know if it's as much a matter of having an R after your name. You know, is, is putting Olympia Snow on something uh, going to sway any Republicans? Probably not, because most of those Republicans, A, didn't know her, and B, don't align ideologically with her. But I think if you're getting a mix of people in your cabinet and around you, who both are from inside the circle, because that's the other question. How much of the people that come into the White House are people that are from new parts of her life instead of the old parts? Um, Is it gonna feel like it's just 1992 all over again? Or are we gonna have a different kind of cabinet and a different kind of staffing? I think think that's gonna be a fascinating piece to sort of tie both of what you're saying into, can we sort of make uh, this toxic, at least alleviates. It kind of be
0: interesting if her whole cabinet was under 40. That would be interesting. She'd
1: be like, take that, Justin Trudeau. Yeah. <laughs> you and your fancy pants 50-50. <laughs> uh, didn't the the, the um, in Italy, isn't it most of his cabinet under 40? Or under 50? No, it's in um, Switzerland and Austria. Mm. Austria mm. Has, the youngest it has the youngest foreign minister. has the youngest. Yeah. And the the Italian PM is, oh, 32. Right. I thought Italy was better. 51. Or 41, I mean. 41. 1984, he was born. Austrian.
0: All right. It is 105. Thank you, Amy, so much. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.